Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. Our guest today is Louise Hardman, who is the founder and CEO of Plastic Collective. Uh, Plastic Collective are tackling plastic waste through a wonderful engineering solution, an innovation called the Schroeder. It's a device that will shred and extrude waste plastic and turn it into a commodity that can either be sold back into markets or turned into useful products. And the real focus here is on supporting regional and remote communities. And that really is what stood out for me during the recording of this episode. Louise's passion for people really shines through. She shares anecdotes of what it's been like to take the technology into communities to identify people who can work in the waste management infrastructure and actually elevate their level in society around turning a problem into a solution. We learned that in the Australia Pacific region, there's 4,000 islands. And on most of those, waste management is really lacking. So I love to romanticize a future where technology like Louise's Schroeder, the Plastic Collective, are out there in remote, in regional communities and allowing us to take back this idea of waste as being waste. Waste is simply a resource waiting for a new purpose. So let's make sure we support people like Louise to do their best work. That's really what Ocean Impact Organization is here to do, to help support and accelerate great ideas that can have a positive impact on planet Ocean. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Ocean Impact Podcast. All right, well, uh, welcome to the Ocean Impact podcast, Louise Hardman. You're Skyping in today from the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Tell us a little bit about where you are today and, and why this place is special for you. Yeah, lovely. Um, hi, Tim. Yes, I'm up at Red Rock, which is halfway between Grafton and Coffs Harbour on the river, um, on the coastline, I should say. So we have a river here that comes, you know, goes right up, up the up into the estuaries, um, with a lot of boating, a lot of people that come here. Yeah, so Red Rock, Karindi River, sitting here admiring the views. The views and the bird song, and uh, you were telling us a little bit about some of the species around there, which are very fond to you. So tell us a little bit about some of those bird species that are found in this area. Yeah, um, Red Rock has been identified <clears throat> as a biodiversity hotspot. For, particularly for bird life. So we have, you know, quite a number of endangered species here. We've got the ground parrot in the heathland behind us. Um, we've got the beach stone curlew just across here, um, pied oyster catchers, blackneck stork, jabiru, um, heaps, heaps and heaps of stuff here. It's a really, really amazing place. Awesome. Okay, so Louise, um, you are the founder and CEO of Plastic Collective. Um, I wonder if you wouldn't mind opening up the conversation with a little bit of a chat about what Plastic Collective is, uh, what are the problems it's trying to solve. Give us the give us the feel of Plastic Collective. Yeah, okay. Um, Plastic Collective, I started it roughly four years ago and with the idea to stop plastics going into the ocean. Um, what I found was 25 years ago, I was doing a marine turtle research 
and we found a turtle that had ingested lots of plastic and slowly died over three days. So this was sort of my big shock moment of, you know, finding a turtle in a national park, marine park, which was a very pristine river, but it still collected all this um, plastic in its gut while it was eating the seagrass. Um, so that was sort of my first big lesson to realise that this plastic moves around once it's in the ocean. So nowhere is vulnerable. I mean, nowhere, nowhere is immune from this pollution. So that was why I started that with the intent to stop plastics going into the sea. And so basically the idea is if we create value out of waste and turn it into a resource, people will not throw it away. They'll harness it because it is a resource, it's worth something, and, and then that will prevent pollution. So we started developing, or I started developing a solution that will turn the waste plastic into a resource, particularly with a machine that shreds and extrudes um, it into products and it makes it viable for communities to use. And also making the equipment and the tools available to remote communities who generally have no resources to do this sort of stuff. Great. And so this technology, the, the Schruder, uh, how did you go creating it and how many units are out there now um, actually in operation? Yeah, so at the moment we have, there's five units out there. We did we did three pilot programs, um, one in the Whit Sundays with Eco Barge, Clean Seas, one in Bali with uh, Sea Communities and one over in Borneo with Reef Check Malaysia. So they're all marine-focused um, conservation groups that have set this up. We piloted the projects there, did the training, education, empowering the communities to be able to use the equipment and understand plastics. And from that, we, we learnt a great deal and we've sort of adapted our project now to sort of change it and scale it up in a way that's going to be even more practical and so that's where we we're up to right now. Great. And so the technology itself, run us through that. I know um, there's been quite a flurry of activity around devices to, to shred and machines that are open source that you can build yourself. So tell us a little bit about how the Schroeder sort of came to be and the technology behind it. Yeah. So it was, it was early 2016 that I started searching for mobile recycling equipment, small mobile recycling equipment. I, you know, couldn't find it anywhere. Then I saw Precious Plastic site, saw Dave Hakens, the, the plans that he'd done, contacted them and said, you know, can I buy some of your machines? And they said, no, no, you have to make it yourself. And I went, oh, I don't really want to make it myself. I'm, I'm a zoologist. Um, so they said, oh, you know, there's the open plans, which was great. So I took these plans to engineers and asked them to make it. They, they had to redesign the plans quite a bit um, for it to be, you know, safe, good, reliable. So we built a prototype machine, put all my savings into that because um, I kept breaking it, you know, as you do because plastic is quite difficult to shred. Um, and then after after about a year, I went in a startup competition. One of the judges was an environmental engineer and he actually awarded me with the grand prize for the startup and asked me if he can help me commercialize the business. So 
he's he sort of took the machine, made it all like super robust and super strong because basically what I had at the time, he said it, that will last one month when you get it into these remote communities with all the salt water, ants, all this other stuff. So he sort of bought his engineers, redesigned it all and made it um, very, very, very good, very robust, strong and safe. So that, that actually took uh, a good two years to do that and, you know, a fair chunk of money as well. It wasn't as cheap as we originally thought, but we got there in the end. Okay, so you sounds like you've done sort of most of the hard work now. You've got a product that is, uh, you know, five units out there and sounds like you're pretty much ready to scale. Tell us a little bit about what this next phase looks like in terms of scaling the project and, and how many communities would you really love to see the, the product and this incredible service to help people put a value on waste plastic? Um, yeah. About that. Yeah. Um, well, we're actually still we've we've recently got a grant to do more R and D, so we still have um, another section to go. So, so what we found with the pilot programs, a number of things occurred. Number one was that most of these places do not have good workshop conditions. Um, the place in Borneo, we were literally working in what looked like a bomb shelter with no windows, rain coming through, cows walking in and out, and it was the most secure place that they could get. So, you know, it's, it does cost it, – it's difficult for them to sort of allocate a works workspace that's safe, dry, and, you know, reliable. So the workstation was number one. Um, so we decided we're going to – containerize it, put it in a, a shipping container. Um, number two was the electrics were quite poor in these communities and the power supply was very unreliable. And like the Bonnier place, they had um, they have generators that work at night, but during the day they they have no power. You know, so well sorry, sorry, they have um, solar at night, but during the day they have to run generators. So we decided that we, if we put it, the equipment in a container, we need to put all the electrics in the container but make it off-grid. So it has to have its own power supply. So we're looking now we're looking at solar and generator options. And the third major thing was the, the shredding capacity of our small machines, which were run off single-phase power, was quite low. Like we were doing between 5 and 20 kilos an hour, which to make it economically viable for these communities to employ people, to sell the shred and to, you know, make profit on it, um, that wasn't enough. So we've had to upgrade the shredding capacity. So, and to do that, we have to upgrade the power supply. So that's where, with the grant we've recently got, we're researching um, a number of components which we will put into these containers, including upgraded shredding. But we're also looking at a range of products the communities can make for themselves that are most useful to them. So whether it's agricultural products, building products, um, you know, whatever, whatever it takes, we've got the university is researching product development and the most practical, affordable um, way to integrate equipment stack in the, in the containers to do that. But then on top of that as well, we've wrapped it with a lot of things. On top of that, um, one thing that we weren't addressing with our first program was the soft plastics. 
So as you know, the soft plastics is one of the biggest environmental problems. So now we're going into research, um, soft plastic processing, how we can convert soft plastics into um, might be lumber, you know, might be chairs, it might be whatever, whatever it takes, it might be diesel fuel. So we've integrated a soft plastic component as well. So we want to do hard and soft plastic, um, hard plastic, soft plastic as a complete solution um, with all the education training. So we're really ramping it up, but we have a number of aspects. We're, we're filling all the gaps in basically. Great. And so in the instance of soft plastics, and you mentioned their plastics to diesel, well, that would be a complete separate piece of technology then to, to look into the soft plastics? Yeah. Yeah. So what we're doing is what we call the equipment stack. So there will be hard plastic processing equipment. There'll be shredding. There may be um, a press mold separate to the extruder. So we're sort of separating the units because they'll be integrated into a container. Um, with benches, workstations, water baths, and things like that. And, yeah, and, and that may be a pyrolysis and distillery unit. And we're working with the um, University of Queensland with that. We're working with product development with um, Southern Cross University. Uh, we're also working with South Pole, who are doing, um, we're, we're, like, they're a carbon offset company that they're part of our project as well, where they're looking at compliance and certification and sort of the, the ethical side of these work workstations, um, you know, to ensure that there is, there's like the, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a story, but we've got this plastic credits where we work with large companies that are also interested in buying credits that will go to these communities and then they by, or they they reprocess, they collect the material plastic and then they reprocess it. They get paid credits for that to collect it on behalf of another company, um, but they keep it out of the system. So we need to have that fully verified. There's no child labour, no slave labour, equal pay, all of this sort of stuff. So that's another whole um, aspect, working group that we've got in there as well. Great. There's a, there's a few points in that that I'd like to come back to, but I thought I just wanted to dive a little bit into, into you because it seems to me like this thing is huge now, right? Plastic Collective is um, already doing great work and you've got a huge vision of where you want to take it. Do you look back at yourself and are you surprised at, at where you are in 2020? And um, tell us a little bit about this transition from the Louise you know, before six or seven years ago and the, and the Louise now? Um, yeah, I'm not really surprised because I, when I started this, I, was, I had a lot of ambition to stop the plastics. I, I, I'm pretty, I was pretty impatient. A few years ago, I was frustrated that it wasn't happening now. Um, but when you look back, things did happen quite rapidly as, for, as far as a business is concerned. Um, but I always had that urgency of like, we've got to stop the plastics now. Uh, and then building a business, testing equipment, finding out what works and what doesn't work was all part of the process. So yeah, for me, it was, um, yeah, I'm very proud of the people I work with. And I think the people that have helped me along the way are the people, you know, were absolutely essential to 
me getting to where we needed to get to. So I couldn't have done it by myself, but I have been able, luckily fortunate, to be able to surround myself with really good experts and good people to work with. So, um, yeah, I'm yeah. blessed. <laughs> but, uh, let's go a little bit deeper into, into why. I mean, you could just be focused on your zoology and out there, you know, monitoring beautiful species in your backyard. There's probably a lot of things that you could be doing. So you spoke a little bit about that encounter with the sea turtle 25 years ago, but it's not easy being this entrepreneur and this founder of something like this. So let's go a little bit deeper into why and, and what drives you. What, what got you over that, uh, that, that bridge to, to commit so hardly hard to this, um, this movement? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose um, what drives me was actually life crisis. So, for well, probably five years ago now, I went through a very, very bad period of my life um, where it just felt, lo- you know, feel like you lost everything. Your life was meaning. My life was meaningless. Um, I was actually sitting in a car. I couldn't get out of the car. I was so depressed at the time, just feeling like I had no value. No, I felt so disempowered, and a friend rang out of the blue and she said, you know, are you okay? And I said, no, no, I'm not. I just don't know what, I don't know where I belong anymore. I just feel so, I feel nothing right now. And she said, water, you have to work with water. And that just like, you know, opened, like it was a flood, a floodgate opened of this memory of, I've got to stop the plastics. What have I been doing? I totally forgot about the plastics. And so that sort of triggered something deep inside me that I had to be out there protecting the oceans and the animals in the ocean. Um, and every bit of work I've done until right up until that point, all of a sudden everything made sense. Why I do that, why I worked with the turtles, why I do the education, you know, why, you know everything sort of came to one point and, and it, all, it was all based around water. So I'm actually looking at water right now um which is absolutely my happy place and you know so i've i felt i got the calling i suppose and that was my mission from now on is i could do this for the rest of my life basically work with these communities to ensure their waterways are clean and you know it's the kind of thing where i wouldn't have even had to ask that question knowing your commitment and knowing how challenging it is to to build a startup like this you just know that behind that is that absolute power and that calling to do something. So thank you for sharing that, Louise. What if you could take us a little bit into these remote communities and what it's like, I suppose, seeing the problem um, and then also mm. integrating this solution. So tell us a little bit about what it's like, what you've seen, I suppose, when it all works, how that gives mm. you that opportunity that these solutions are what are required. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose, yeah, my favourite bit is this community engagement of working with these communities. And there's so many amazing groups out there that are doing great stuff within their region. For, uh, the example in um, Bali, this group in Bali we, we work with is called Sea Communities. So they do coral reef restoration. They've got, um, they bring university students and visitors come from all around the world to learn about how to do coral reef restoration um, and how to engage in the community. They, there, a lot of knowledge sharing goes on with this group. So we were in particular looking for groups like that that really contributed a lot to the community. They have this huge value add. 
So they wanted to, you know, go the next step. And because they've got coral reef, trying to rebuild the coral reef after a lot of cyanide poisoning, um, and 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 the village at Les Village is a fisherman's village, so they rely on the reefs for their livelihood. So the work this community does has huge impact on this the three villages surrounding it. So um, when we started working with them, they were trying to get up a recycling centre. They were not sure quite how to do it, but they their mission was to stop the plastics being burnt and dumped directly into the river, which would affect the coral reef, which would affect the community. So they had a they got, had a recycling centre. When we brought the machines and training in, um, the first thing I noticed was the community, the people working in the project, they were disengaged if they didn't understand the process. Once they understood the process and they felt confident, they knew the process clearly, you know, you demonstrate with them and then you get them to do, you know, the sorting and the collecting and the processing and the shredding and so forth. Once they understood that, they had immense pride. So you'd go from this feeling shame to feeling pride. And when you see that switch then, that's the empowerment that, you know, we were looking for and that that's the bit. When you see them holding this bag of shred that they're about to sell for $50, you know, for a couple of hours' work, they're just over the moon. So, um, yeah, that's my favourite bit is, you know, seeing, seeing eliminating shame and sort of that feeling of like, oh, they're just working in a trash place to bringing it into pride that they, they are the, the shining light of the town where all the ministers are coming to look at this new centre that is a resource recovery centre. It's not a waste management centre. It's a resource. Um, and then all of a sudden their status in their hearts goes right up because they feel like they're contributing so much to the community, their families and so forth. And it's really quite amazing seeing that. But I'm, I'm, I'm more amazed at um, the, the ability of them, these community um, groups to adapt and learn so rapidly and they're so creative that they just need to know the process and we need to provide safe, workable conditions, equipment, um, and then they're, they're off and running. Can it, can it work? Can it solve the, the plastic pandemic, the, the value on plastic approach? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so what we do is we don't, we're not just recycling. So the education, I've got six education and training modules. One of them goes into the schools. It's called Turtle Ed. So it's, it's a program that teaches the students that plastic is a resource, but there are plastics that need to be eliminated because they're toxic. And so there is, we do follow the Ellen MacArthur principles of eliminate um, toxic plastics and harmful plastics. Um, substitute unsustainable plastics and recycle or circulate what is what you can recycle. So the three main ones that are PET, HDPE and PP. So, so with that in mind, this education program teaches kids um, to bring in clean plastic from home, treat it as a resource, and then they get a reward for it. And, the, and then they learn all about ocean guys, microplastics. Um, you know, they, they get that holistic view of what rubbish if plastic is thrown away and becomes waste what it does to their community what it does to their health what it does to the animals and so that's a really beautiful program that sort of sits at the front end of our training and then we go into know your plastics which is working 
with the micro enterprise. So it might be five or so people setting up a recycling station and they help design products of what they want to see in their community, what's of value to them. But they learn the, the chemistry of plastics, the material science behind it, so that they know they can work safely with it. They don't, you know, get fumes and they don't um, put, say, mixed PVC with PET and so forth. So they can work safely, eliminating the ones that they don't work with, PVC and P polystyrene. Um, and then also sort of looking at soft plastics. And that's another whole sort of field that we go into. So yeah, there's lots of lots of training aspects. Um, I have three modules in the micro enterprise thing. And then I've got another community training, which is called Living with Plastics, um, how to how to reduce your consumption so you can get your consumption under 10 kilograms a year. In Australia, we're currently up around you know somewhere between 50 and 100 kilograms per person per year. Of um, using single-use plastics. So with some very simple, you know, very simple guidelines, you can reduce your plastic down to absolute minimum and sort of help your community, so help the help the waste the waste issues. So if we are to see um, solutions like yours and maybe there's other models out there as well, like uh, how big does it need to scale um, and Who's going to fund that and who already is is dipping into their pockets to, to help scale enterprises like this? Yeah, so our first first three projects were sponsored by, two of them sponsored by Coca-Cola, one sponsored by TK Maxx. Um, I work very closely with the plastic manufacturing companies, companies, some of the biggest plastic manufacturers um, down in Melbourne and so forth. So we... we like to like to me there's no good guys bad guys it's it's all about working together to find a solution to stop plastic going into the ocean end of story so we've had a very good working relationship with coca-cola um and i know that they are one of the biggest producers of plastic or you know consumers of plastic bottles and and but any initiatives that they can do towards stopping plastics going into the ocean you know, should be rewarded, should be, you know, applauded as well. So the at the moment we've got we've got companies that we work with, they can come in at different levels. So they can either sponsor a pilot project, which a number have, or they can come at come in at the product manufacturing level where they actually buy shred for their for their um, products. And we've got a number of them. On that side of things, the demand is much higher than the supply right now. So we've got companies going, we will buy 50,000 tonnes off you from all these communities when we aggregate it together. And we set up those supply chains as well. So that we can't get enough demand right now. I mean, supply from these communities to fill those orders. So the idea is we're looking at hub and spoke models. So if you set up a recycling factory in a region, we could set up 20 community um, little little stations around to feed that recycling company uh, with the guarantee that they will buy the material from them. So there's sort of, we've got um, different economic models for different stages of businesses getting involved. We also have a consulting side where we're looking, we, we launched Plastic Neutral in 2017, and this is to enable businesses to reduce their plastic consumption through a consulting 
um, process, reduce their consumption, and then what they can't reduce, they're still using, they offset that, like pretty much like carbon offsets. So they pay a community to collect the amount that they're consuming. They pay another community that has no waste facilities to reclaim that on their behalf. Um, and that's the verification thing that we're going through at the moment with Southpop. And so that's that's another way that um, businesses can, they can add that sort of certification that they are a plastic neutral business because they are already gathering that material out of the environment and keeping it out of the environment and paying communities that have no access to those facilities. So, yeah, there's a number of different ways businesses can get involved, but we, we've had great responses from um, big businesses, basically, small businesses, large businesses, um, cosmetic companies that want to have recycled content in their bottles because they're making organic um, face care creams, um, you know, even toilet paper manufacturers that offset their plastic covering because they have to use, you know, it's very difficult to make toilet paper and in cardboard boxes because it absorbs the water. So, you know, they have to use a certain amount of soft plastic so they can offset that and help other communities recover the materials. So, yeah, a number of different avenues. But um, at the moment, the we've got a lot of interest and a lot of companies that are, you know, ready to start supporting these projects, which we're really blessed. Great. So a lot of your support now and into the future, looking at coming from the, the private sector and particularly corporations that have a significant plastic footprint and might be obviously looking for those means to offset. But I, also, I guess the other part of that is the, the growing demands for companies and huge claims out there to bring more recycled content into their supply chain. That's where you mentioned, obviously, at the moment, the demand uh, is very, very high and the supply is what's really lacking. So, yeah, what's it going to take and how many, how much infrastructure do you think Plastic Collective uh, will have out there in five, ten years' time and what other players are going to get out there as well in order to aggregate enough so that we can actually bring so much ocean-bound and recycled material into, into mm. the market? Yeah, so we're looking at the moment, we're looking at um, the capacity of these units will be around about 145 tonnes a year um, of material they can process. So that generally, in depending on the consumption rates, generally is about 30 to 40,000 people that will cover. And we have been, we are in discussions with regional councils as well, um, remote communities that have no access to any, any um, you know, or well, the cost of transport is really high for them. So we are looking into regional councils as well and different governments. For example, there's, um, we're, we're working with a really innovative company that does um, compostable nappies. So linking that sort of, you know, collaboration with companies like that to solve problems in places, say, Vanuatu that has a lot of problems with nappies. I think they're going, they're putting a ban on plastic nappies soon. So, yeah, there's there's a lot that we can do in government councils and businesses as well. So, yeah, ex at the moment we're sort of exploring a lot of options and um, also working with universities. We've got a number of really fantastic, uni good universities that are doing particular research projects that link into this bigger picture. 
so for, for me, it's this huge collaboration. And like I originally wanted to call my business Collective Effervescence, which is, which my daughter said, nobody can spell it, let alone say it. So um, with, it's a sociology term meaning the energy produced by people working together. And, and that's sort of what I initially saw this collective was all about, was people coming together for the same cause. And then you have this exponential amount of energy produced by it. We did have to shorten it to plastic collective, but that collective concept is there that people working together, collaborating, not competition, but collaborating and helping each other. Um, and that's how I think we're going to solve this whole problem. But um, I think just jumping back to when you said, um, where do you see this going? I see there's over 4,000 islands out in Asia Pacific region that is producing 11 million tonnes of plastic at the moment that is not being collected. It is 100% leakage going into the environment. It's not being accounted for in the stats. The stats are all around the rivers, the four major rivers. Nobody's counted the islands. So that's where I'm focusing is these remote communities that are sort of left out of the picture. So if we can get units out into every island, every community, then it's going to you know, go a long way to sort of solving the problem. And we want to make it so scalable and these units so affordable. That's why we've got this research component going on now to, to get, keep the price down, to keep it you know, accessible for everybody. Wonderful. Well, um, I love that uh, conversation there about effervescence. And it's a good segue, I suppose, to, to talk about two aspects of that. Uh, one, I suppose, is the breadth of challenges that our oceans face and how you're seeing this collective unifying around, you know, SDG 14, life below water, and a lot of emphasis on how we can um, really create an abundant and sustainable ocean. Um, and the second part, I suppose, is how are you finding this sort of startup community in Australia and, and what's happening around that effervescence of innovation and technology to counter these big significant problems out there? Yeah, well, I think the, what's happening in Australia is absolutely amazing. Like for yourself, I've been following your progress and the work with, you know, Take Three for the Sea and now the, the New Oceans Initiative. Um, the, the work going on in Australia is just so important because we have the, we've got um, a lot of skills and a lot of technology sitting here in Australia that can be so helpful to communities that simply don't have that access, either access to education, access to technology, access to resources. If we can sort of bring our, what we've got in Australia over to the places that don't have it, um, even within Australia, like we have so many remote communities that are lacking the infrastructure to do anything and and they're being neglected, you know. And then when people go visiting these places, they go, oh, my God, there's so much rubbish here. Well, because they've got no options. And, yeah, so I think what's happening in Australia is this incredible sort of movement um, because we love the ocean so much. We're, it's sort of like we're all water babies. We're all grown up in the ocean swimming since we were babies, uh, surfing, diving. You know, to us, like, the ocean is life, you know. And I think the work that everybody's doing around that is we're, we're supporting each other, we're encouraging each other, and it's just awesome, absolutely awesome. 
Great. And the first part of that question about what you're seeing internationally, globally, how we are we well rest in this realization of how important protecting planet ocean is, or do you feel we've got a, a long way to go? Uh, no, I, th I think we've got the the knowledge is there, the the knowledge and the willpower is there to do it. We do need more backing from um, we do need more backing from the system, from our our infrastructure, from our councils, from our governments, from you know businesses are quite on board with this, but because in Australia we do have quite a dispersed population, um, bringing that all together. Like, like I work in a very remote regional area, so often to get support for us out here is very difficult. So uh, we have to go to the cities to do the conferences, to do the meetings, to you know meet people that are working in this space. Um, yeah, but I think what after going to the National Plastics Summit, the general agreement was that this, there is a big gap in the system. The, you've got the grassroots communities are doing fantastic stuff. You know, like if you go to the beaches around here, they're all clean because all the locals pick up material. They take through, you know, they 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 keep their beaches clean. You go to remote communities where no one's walking along the beaches. There's stuff all over the place. And, you know, whereas, you know, so the grassroots groups are really good and really strong. People have got a great awareness and great education. And then the businesses... Like the technology is there to do the recycling, to do the resource recovery. It's there. We've got that. You know, we've got these fantastic industries ready to go. It's the bit in between we're lacking. So it's getting it from the communities to these places and supporting those businesses to establish um, their resource recovery or, you know, to deal with the, the problem that we've got right now of all the, you know, the, the national sword policy, which, you know, good on China for not taking all the foreign waste. We have to look after our own waste and we have to turn that mentality from waste to resource. Um, and I think the government really needs to step in now and address that, you know, and be part of that solution because we had the Senate inquiry in 2016, a lot of great, um, you know, around marine debris, which was, you know, they said was one of the most pressing issues in Australia. A lot of those recommendations weren't followed through some were, not all, a lot weren't. And, you know, there's been recent Senate inquiries as well about the waste industry and what we need to do to sort of really get it moving. Um, yeah, and I think it just needs to be, it needs, it needs that input now, that system, the, you know, where, whether it's the councils having a, a standardised methodology of dealing with people's material, um, whether, it's, whether it's reducing some the toxic materials like for me the fact that we're still using polystyrene in food containers is just beyond me like well, i don't understand why we would be doing that especially in coffee cup lids you know when it is a toxic material um other countries are banned it you know so there's a lot of things that we can be doing and there's experts out there that know what they're talking about and it just needs the the Governments and the state, the federal and the state government and the councils all need to sort of come together and have a combined approach of dealing with this. I was going to attempt to sort of, yeah, sort of reiterate um, the missing pieces there. So the grassroots side, fully on board. I'd say that, you know, we've won the hearts and minds of the mm. masses. 
And then we have at the other end of the spectrum this clear intent from government and multinationals that they want to see massive improvement, but then there's this void in between. So how would you clearly then define what's lacking in this void and, and what needs to change there? Yeah. Okay. So part of the void is it's part of the void is closing that loop and finding that circular economy piece. So a, a number of companies at the conference were saying that they they need to have risk. They need risk proof. So they've been hurt before where industries were shut down because waste materials sent to China, and so they had to close because it no longer became viable. Um, so they they're cautious about sort of going the next step and setting up these recycling facilities or resource recovery centres because of the potential risk of it collapsing again um, and not being supported by government or, you know, not being viable. So the other side of thing is like um, getting the community, getting the people to understand that plastic, recycled plastic products will go a long way to sort of closing the loop. And if we're looking at, say for example, I'm sitting on a table right now that's made out of wood. And often they soak the wood, particularly in playgrounds, with arsenic. You know, frames and houses got arsenic in it. If you were to do um, plastic composite lumber, that will last forever. doesn't need any treating and it's incredibly durable. And there's a lot of companies in Australia, well, there's companies in Australia now that, that can produce that. But councils still go and buy the wooden benches, you know, and paint it and treat it and stuff like that. So if you've got if you've got this increased awareness of the how to close the loop, how to provide um, provide that pull through effect, then that's going to help businesses immensely, you know. Right. Yeah. And just um, for those of you listening, the the National Plastic Summit was Australia's first real gathering to um, to look deeply at the future of our relationship with plastic, and particularly. Um, stemming the tide on plastic pollution recently in 2020. Um, yeah, okay, we're going to start to, to wind up our great conversation today. I've, I've found it really um, enjoyable and enlightening. So maybe just tell us a little bit more about what next for you and, and what next for, for Plastic Collective. Yeah, okay, so this year we're pretty much, we've got what we're calling our Schroeder Recycling Stations. We're developing them, we're piloting them um, in some remote Aboriginal communities and we'll be seeing, you know, what works, what doesn't, and then integrating the eight different working groups into that. Um, so we're really looking forward to sort of working with a number of um, organisations. We have about 30 people working on this project right now, um, which is super exciting considering like when I first started, it was just me. Um, so I'm really, really proud of that fact and you know that we're bringing something back into the community and particularly in Australia too I'm really proud that I can be working with some you know remote indigenous communities um, which you know I've always you know I've got the greatest respect for you know with the caring for the country caring for land looking after the environment so you know I want to support that as well so yeah I'm integrating sort of education into it, trying to get this into schools as well as far as education training projects. So, you know, kids can learn about resource, plastic resource, as opposed to plastic waste and pollution, um, how to flip that around 
in the mentality, people's mentality and how they look at the world. Um, yeah, so there's lots going on. But, you know, with everything happening right now, um, I think it's important that we sort of stay positive and try to look for empowering solutions, things that will empower us to make us feel like we haven't lost control. Like when I had that feeling of like feeling so lost and disempowered, the whole purpose behind setting this up was to empower myself so I could help others. And so to do that, you have to look for the solutions. Don't not focusing on the problem, obviously be aware of the problem, but focus on what is the solution and how you're going to fix it. And just, you know, we're, it's almost like we're always in beta. We're always learning and we're always trying to make things better. So we've never got to a point where we go, oh, that's it. That's the perfect training program. That's a perfect solution. You know, we're always learning more and more and more as we do more projects. Um, yeah, and I just want to keep it that way. I want it to keep evolving and keep, you know, collaborating with people and learning more as we go. Well, I certainly find you very inspiring and very empowering, <laughs> Louise, and I'm sure many others do. Um, we're very thankful to have you working so passionately on this um, on this important ocean challenge. So I'll leave it for you to say any last minute closing remarks and where people can find out more information about you and Plastic Collective. Yep. Okay. If you want to learn more about Plastic Collective, um, our website is www.plasticcollective.com co um yeah drop us a line follow us on facebook uh, insta all of that and yeah love to come and talk to you all well hopefully we talk again in a few years time and there's uh, a lot more shrewders and a lot more great equipment out there in remote communities and those four thousand islands in the asia pacific region you mentioned yeah yeah and we're empowering communities that's that's our purpose as well yeah Great stuff, Excellent. Louise. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I love your work too.
Take the ocean out of me